Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Happy New Year, everyone. Our first guest of 2023 is actor and comedian Ed Helms, who you know from the Hangover Trilogy, The Office, and The Daily Show. Our caller today is Amanda, who was on our show back in 2021. Now divorced, Amanda faces a new challenge, co-parenting. As always, thank you for listening to our podcast. If you have a question and would like to talk with us, please look for the link at unqualified.com. Ladies and gentlemen, you are listening to Unqualified with your host, Anna Ferris. Let's get right into Snafu, which I've been listening to. Oh. It is awesome. Thanks. It makes me wonder about you and also the fragility of, you know, our world. Yeah. <laughs> I want to ask you about the origins. Will you tell us about Snafu and your involvement? Yeah. Well, thanks for asking. Thanks for listening to it. I love it. So this is my sort of foray into the podcast space. But it is a history podcast, a true history podcast. But we just tell this story with a little bit of kind of snark and audio collage style a la Radio Lab or something. So Snafu is the podcast. This season tells the story of Abel Archer 83. And that is this crazy event during the Cold War. So the premise of Snafu as a podcast is we just talk about history's greatest screw-ups. I enjoyed the Snafu reference. Would you mind explaining that? Oh, yeah. Snafu is a military acronym that I think dates back to World War I. It just means situation normal, all fucked up. It's kind of the best. Yeah. It just means like... Hey, this is a shitty situation, but isn't it always like this is normal and everything's a mess. My other favorite, of course, is FUBAR. You know what that one means, right? No. FUBAR? Fucked up beyond all recognition? (laughs) A lot of military acronyms are like impossible to remember and they just are for crazy esoteric things. But SNAFU and FUBAR are just classics and they should be in everyone's vocabulary. Totally. So Able Archer 83. Able Archer is an annual military exercise or was back during the Cold War that NATO would perform. And it's basically just this sort of grand rehearsal for a giant nuclear conflict. Like what would happen? And so NATO, they had actually mobilized tons of soldiers and resources and planes and ships and stuff in this grand exercise. This particular year, 1983, tensions between NATO and the Soviet Union, really the United States and the Soviet Union, were so high that the Soviet Union was watching Able Archer 83 as they always did. But this time they were seeing it as, oh, my God, maybe NATO is actually planning a real attack. Did the exercises always take place in the same area? More or less, it's on a huge scale. So you have NATO countries mobilizing. Yeah, warships and troops and planes and all kinds of things. And it's 
basically a big practice coordination, right? And these happen all the time. Like this is always going on, these military exercises. It's what militaries do when they're not fighting. They're training, right? Or showing off. Or, yeah, exactly. Flexing a little. Yeah. It's a little bit of both for sure. So this, again, was routine and the Soviet Union knew about it. And every year they watched it and monitored it. But this year they were really skittish and basically thought, we think Able Archer is to cover for actual war preparation on the part of NATO. So the Soviet Union got really nervous and there were a number of other kind of dominoes that fell. And basically, we almost stumbled into a nuclear war. And it's believed by a lot of historians that we were closer in that moment to actual nuclear annihilation than at any other point in human history. And the crazy thing about it, I mean, there's a lot of crazy things about it. But among the crazy things is that it was kept secret for a long time. Sure, we've heard about the Cuban Missile Crisis. Nuclear annihilation is one of those things that you're like, well, it didn't happen. So that's good, right? So we're fine. And whatever sort of nuclear avoidance policies we had in place worked because we didn't die. Well, not exactly. And what you kind of come to realize or understand is that even a small risk of nuclear annihilation, because the stakes are total and complete, even a small risk is way too much. And especially if that risk gets exacerbated by human error, miscommunication, misjudgment, misanalysis of information. And that's everything that was going on. And honestly, it is terrifying. No matter how close we came to a nuclear war in that moment, any increment in that, any increase in that risk is fucking insane. We should not ever be close to nuclear annihilation, ever. So then that becomes this thing that the government is like, well, this is obviously crazy. We have to keep it secret. Then it becomes, you start to ask these questions, well, like, is secrecy good and valuable? And of course, it has its purpose in national security. But at a certain point, is it also just cover for really terrible mistakes? And does it keep governments and militaries from truly being accountable for insane shit? And where is the line of like, what's the right amount of secrecy? What's the appropriate amount? And it's safe to say that a lot of times secrecy is misused. It's mishandled. It's taken advantage of. I don't know. I'm kind of like talking really fast. Is this making sense? <laughs> yes, it is making sense. And without giving away your story necessarily. So there was this miscommunication between NATO, essentially, and the Russian government, the Russian military. Like, where were the stumbles? First of all, I also want to say that as I'm describing this, it might be sounding very dry and kind of like no, theoretical really funny. and stuff. But you have like Matthew Broderick. <laughs> you talk about your war games experience. Yeah, okay, like, great. Yeah. I, I understand that it's based in something that I fundamentally love about you. Yeah, I just want listeners to understand like the podcast is fun. Like it's storytelling and we get into some really crazy historical detail, but it's ultimately like a really fun ride. And there's a lot of tension and humor. So, yeah, how did we stumble into this? Well, I would say like from a high altitude and I, I am going to kind of like avoid spoilers, but there's a thing happening during the Cold War, which was that there was very little diplomatic contact at some of the most tense times. And so you had Brezhnev and Dropov and, you know, the Soviet leaders and our president at the time, Reagan, not talking to one another. We had these ballooning nuclear arsenals. We had the ability to literally blow up the earth 
over 50 times or annihilate human civilization 50 times over. God, we are a virus. Yeah. In military terms, yeah. they would call that making the rubble bounce, which is such a darkly hilarious yeah. term, right? So after the first time you annihilate the <laughs> Earth and you keep launching missiles. I guess we did it. Like, Look, the rubble's <laughs> bouncing. How cool is that? Oh, God. So the arsenals were ballooning. There was this bizarre idea that mutually assured destruction or MAD, as that acronym was, mutually assured destruction kept things calm because anyone who started a war would also die. And that's a very rational approach to an incredibly irrational situation. You know, the building up of doomsday weapons is so irrational. And yet there doesn't seem to be an alternative or no one could sort of figure out or negotiate what the alternative was, that there was a ton of politics going on at the time. You know, Reagan really had framed himself as this sort of cowboy, tough guy. He was the first to describe the Soviet Union as an evil empire. That was a famous speech that he gave. That ratcheted up tensions. The U.S. was doing a lot of military kind of exercises, flying fighter jets very close to Russian airspace on Russia's east coast over the Pacific Ocean. And that was kind of ratcheting up tension. There was a Korean Airlines airliner that was shot down by a Soviet fighter that was a very confusing international crisis, right? Like, why did that happen? Clearly, it was like a mistake. And yet maybe they thought it was an American spy plane or spy jet or something. 249 civilians died in this tragic military mistake. So that just created tons of tension. It also created an opportunity for Reagan to kind of like keep casting the Soviets as this evil empire. How dare they shoot down an airliner? All these things are ratcheting up tensions and there's nothing mitigating the tension. And so when Able Archer starts this routine military exercise, the Soviets are so much more on edge. And what winds up being so problematic is that the Soviets are more on edge than the West realizes. So the West is doing these exercises and kind of arguably taunting the Soviets in different ways. Without realizing the tension on the Russian exactly. side. Exactly. And the evil empire stuff. And meanwhile, the Soviets are also kind of like sending spies into the West and trying to kind of gauge what's really going on. And they're making some terrible decisions and some bad judgments. And what's really fascinating from a psychological standpoint is just the amount of projection happening. You know, it's very hard to see and understand someone else's. I mean, this happens on a huge international scale, but even on an interpersonal scale, just like in any relationship. I blame texting. Right. We just project. We fill in all the holes. When we don't understand somebody, we fill it in with what we know about ourselves. And so if we don't understand why the Soviets are acting this way, then we rationalize it through, well, why would I do that? But meanwhile, they might have an entirely different premise for their decisions or their point of view. So the psychology of it is fascinating and terrifying and fun, really fun to dissect, by the way. I know. I love that you open with, like, you put it so eloquently and hysterically, the idea that, like, yeah, since this was 40 years ago. Tragedy plus time equals comedy. <laughs> um, no, oh, but let's talk about the opening because we start the podcast. This is a spoiler alert, but we start with Matthew Broderick. And you're like, why the hell would Matthew Broderick weigh in on this? And it's because this is insane. So he was in a movie called War Games, which was, I think, his big breakout role. 
I loved this movie as a kid. Came out in 1983. Okay. The premise of the movie is that a nuclear war almost starts accidentally between America and the Soviet Union because of some sort of like computer shenanigans and misunderstandings. That comes out in the spring of 1983. Abel Archer happens in the late fall of 1983. It's the same fucking year that this Hollywood movie comes out and basically becomes this dark punk rock like prediction. And totally struck a chord with you. You couldn't sleep. I know. At camp. <laughs> That's right. I don't blame you. I love this kind of stuff. My parents had cable TV when I was a kid, which was a blessing and mostly a curse because I would watch these movies and I probably saw war games like 20 times. I loved it, but it scared the hell out of me. We love fear in a certain way, oh, especially as a kid. Love it. I mean, we hate it, but we love it. I wonder if you felt like I would have felt, which would have been something like, I just know something that you guys don't know. Yeah, that's it. And this is going to be tough for you guys. Right? That's exactly how my brain worked. You're right. I went to a summer camp after watching war games way too many times and basically thought, you people don't get it. <laughs> yeah. Like, enjoy yeah. your little canoe trips, <laughs> yep. your little hiking in the woods. Yep. Have fun, guys, because it's all getting incinerated. <laughs> the rubble's going to bounce <laughs> any fucking day now. <laughs> and everyone's like, Helms, you're 10. Why are you so jaded? Why are you talking like Colonel Kurtz in Apocalypse <laughs> Now? And it's like, well, because I watched war games. And I, I get it. We're doomed. We're fucking doomed, man. Right, no. right. But uh, yeah, I was a scared kid. And it's funny. And that's definitely why this story, as you know, so many years later, as I learned about the real story of Abel Archer, like it just was this boom, like it really grabbed me. Will you tell our listeners how you came across the story and how the story eventually came out of secrecy? Yeah. So I was, like a lot of people, loving podcasts. I just was listening to tons of stuff. And I was just like, where do I fit into this? Do I fit into it? Is there something I can do? And then we were talking to my company. We we're starting to think about it and like, okay, maybe it's a history. Th I've always been kind of a history nerd. And then we were talking with our friends at Film Nation who had just started a podcast production arm. And they were like, we have this awesome story we want to tell. We don't really know how to do it or what the execution would be. And they're the ones that floated Abel Archer. And as soon as I read just like the opening paragraph, I was like, holy shit. And I just went down this YouTube rabbit hole, just devouring the story. Abel Archer 83. Abel Archer 83. It's great. Doesn't it sound good? It has such a good ring to it, too. Yeah. And so then we just got to work on it with, we lined up some amazing producers and researchers. And the final product really is this really cool mashup of archival audio and then tons of interviews that both the producers did and I did. And there's a bonus episode. I don't think it's out yet, but it's coming out really soon. I actually interviewed a KGB spy. No! Yes! Like, if you told me when I was 12, like, one day you will get to ask anything you want of a KGB spy, I would be like, get out of here! That's the coolest thing ever. <laughs> anyway, that's a bonus episode. It's so fun and cool. Jack Barsky is the guy. He's just such a fascinating person. But anyway, that's how I got into it. Now, how did Abel Archer kind of break out of secrecy? Well, that's an amazing story on its own. 
And it really is the work of a couple of very diligent, badass historians who just would not take no for an answer when it came to like classified documents. And they filed FOIAs. A FOIA is the Freedom of Information Act. And that's how you get access to classified documents. If you can demonstrate a public interest in declassifying something, then they have to declassify it. So some historians were like aware of this Able Archer thing, but not sure what it was. And so just really dug in and fought the establishment and got access to it. And that was not that long ago, which is crazy. You know, it's out there now. It's been out for a bunch of years, but it hasn't been known publicly or really understood. And I think if you go on YouTube, you can find a lot of fascinating stuff about it. But just listen to our podcast. I want like 18 more years of this if you're not too exhausted. <laughs> I want to ask you a few other questions if you don't mind. Anything. Yeah. Hit me. All right. What is your relationship with the idea of patriotism? Um, I fucking love patriotism. What does that evoke in you, I guess? Uh, let's see. I can just define it for myself because there's a lot of behavior that I really do disagree with that people try to characterize as patriotism. I just believe that the United States is a really incredible country and has some amazing humanity and ingenuity and hope. And also it has a lot of flaws and some terrible scars from the past. And to me, patriotism is about taking all of that stuff head on and just wanting to be a better country and wanting to do better and be the best that we can be. When I get really frustrated is when people seem to conflate patriotism with just like denying that anything's wrong or denying that we ever did anything wrong. Like, that seems insane. Like a blind loyalty. Yeah, no one will tell you that, like, slavery was great. But there are a lot of people that seem to believe, like, we just shouldn't talk about it. Why would we talk about it? And that's crazy. Of course we should talk about it. It's one of the greatest injustices in human history. It's right on our soil. It's part of what built America. Let's reckon with this shit. And let's reckon with, among other things, I've always just had a good feeling about America and a hope, I don't know, a feeling of hope that we're going to get better and keep getting better. That's needed right now. And I appreciate you. I appreciate that sentiment. I think self-critique is one of our best qualities, or at least the freedom to critique. I think a lot about the idea of American identity. Sure. It's hard to not attach our national identity to ourselves in ways that I don't think we examine very carefully. Absolutely. I totally agree. It's like a sports team. Yeah. It's like a ride or die feeling. I think of it a little bit in the way that I think about my own identity, which is to say, man, there's a lot that I don't like, or there's like a lot of things I want to change about myself or do better. And I struggle with those things all the time. And it's hard sometimes, but like we're at our best when we fundamentally love ourselves and give ourselves room to be human and be flawed. And that's what I think is as a population, like we need to do with the United States. We need to kind of like find love for the country while really trying to confront the stuff that we don't like, because there's tons of it. There's tons of stuff wrong. There's tons of broken stuff. You know, the wealth gap is absolutely insane. Don't get me started on how corporate giving has just destroyed our political system. Like everyone's like, protect democracy. But democracy is so broken right now with the influence of corporate giving. Like repeal Citizens United. Let me just say that. 
Look up Citizens United. The super PACs, right? Yeah, it's the single biggest thing, like, threatening our democracy. There was some comedian who said that politicians should wear jumpsuits like NASCAR drivers that just have all the patches with all the (laughs) donations, whatever companies gave them donations. Wouldn't Uh, it be fun to be competing lobbyists? Like, I'm just imagining trying to outrun you in heels down a congressional hallway. Oh, my God. Let's write this movie. This sounds actually fun and dark. We'll get Adam McKay to direct it. I love it. This is perfect. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. How do you think if you went to your high school reunion, your 20th, your 30th, how do you think people would remember you? That's a good question. I think I was kind of middle of the pack. That feels fair. I grade myself as like a C minus, D plus on the social scale. Yeah. I bet you were like B plus, A minus socially. Well, it's funny. I think that most kids always undergrade themselves, right? Like when you observe a group of kids and you're like, oh, what a charming group of kids or like they seem to be getting along great or whatever. And then if you were to take them aside and be like, how are you feeling about yourself right now? They'd be like, terrible. (laughs) You know, I do think adolescence is just such a challenging time intrinsically. And I definitely struggled. I had like a lot of just self-doubt and I don't know if like depression was part of it or what, but I definitely struggled. But I don't think anyone in my high school would say I was like an outlier. I was just, like I said, kind of middle of the pack. Like, oh, yeah, good for you, Ed. Yeah. Made it in Hollywood. Yeah. <laughs> I want to dive into your idea of romance and when you first felt like you were in love, understanding the love shifts throughout the years. All right. I guess I was kind of a late bloomer. I didn't, um, I had crushes. But I just didn't know how to navigate those waters. Yeah. When was your first real relationship? I had lots of relationships like through college and stuff. But I think my first real relationship was when I moved to New York right after college and started dating someone. And it was like, we're adults now. And like, we have to actually plan things around each other. And it just was such a wake up call. I remember she just kind of like buttonholed me one day and was like, I was like, what are we going to do tonight? And she was like. Why do you ask that every day? Like, why don't we ever have a plan? Why don't we ever know? And I was like, oh, I don't know. (laughs) And it was this thing of like, I guess, yeah, okay. It's when the checklist in life really starts to happen. Yeah. And I had been living a very self-centered life up until that point. You're young and especially like in college, but I think even more so than normal (laughs) 
And I just was very career focused. I was like super comedy focused. I just wanted to do stand up, which is also a very solitary kind of like self driven thing. It is. And I just was living in New York and I started dating this person that I really cared about and thought was incredibly cool and smart and funny. And she was just sort of like, you got to broaden your thinking a little here. Like you got to think about more than just what's right ahead of you and like what's best for you in any given moment. And she was so right. And it was really like such a wake up call. And I think that was probably the first hard fall of love, like feeling such a new kind of deeper affection for somebody. Did she break up with you? No, I actually ended it because there were just some other aspects of it. We did get past that kind of initial hump. And then it was about maybe not quite two years where I just was feeling like other aspects of it were not lining up. And I will say, like, I drove that breakup and I do think it was the right decision ultimately, but it also broke my heart. Like, I really struggled recovering from that. It was the first time I went to therapy, actually. I remember I was just like out at a bar, drowning my sorrows. And I was like, oh, maybe I'll just talk to this cute girl and she'll like distract me. And she was the one to be like, hey, man, you seem like you're working with something. What's going on with you? And I was like, okay, yeah, I'm going through a breakup. And then this yeah. woman, we became friends yeah. and she was like, I love it. yeah, she was so cool. She was like, you know, I went through a really hard thing recently and uh, maybe you want to talk to this therapist. Like she's right over across town. And, and I was like, yeah, sure. What the hell? Why not? I grew up in the South. I grew up in an environment where therapy was just like for like either crazy people or wimps. Yes. And then I got to New York and, you know, everybody in New York is in therapy, but it was like this cultural shift. And I can remember this moment happening where. I realized, like, why wouldn't I just, if I had the opportunity to, like, work on my own psychology a little bit, like, why wouldn't I? What a great thing. And so I just had this sort of flip in my head about therapy and was like, yeah, of course, let's get into it. And it was so, so helpful. That's my therapy journey. It's a whole separate thing. <laughs> so I'm curious about how your mind works. Let's say that all arts, music, I know that you love music and play an instrument, which is kind of why I'm asking this question. And of course, you're brilliant as an actor, as a stand-up. Let's say all of that was illegal, outlawed. How would you earn money? <laughs> if everything that defines me was outlawed? Yeah. I guess I'd be a hitman. Like, I'd just go around and kill people because I would be so miserable. <laughs> How would I make money? You know... I don't know if you felt this way kind of coming up through show business, but I had this weird feeling and I still believe it. Part of what drove me in show business was I think I derived a lot of confidence from it, but really fundamentally it was a deep fear that I couldn't do anything else. Like I had to do show business because it's the only thing that I understood. It's the only thing that I wanted to attack and that I wanted to go after and that I could like motivate to try to like keep kicking ass at this thing. And I knew that if I like had tried to go to law school or tried to be an entrepreneur or something that I was doomed because, you know, another struggle that I've had forever, but kind of with a much later in life recognition is ADHD and the things that a lot of people take for granted in the kinds of jobs that just require like some fundamental focus are so, so hard. and terrifying to me. 
which sounds crazy because I'm, you know, by all outward appearances, a successful person, but like, I don't know if I could manage in most other kinds of jobs. This is a job that's so amorphous and constantly changing. And that's what allows my brain to wrap around it. Let me throw two ideas past you because I'm now in charge of reassigning the artists in the community to go to other jobs. Hit me. Yeah. Okay. What about Los Angeles traffic engineer? You're monitoring like every day the whole database, like patterns. Uh, Like if it's raining, do you need to slow down? Yeah. Okay. Do you like patterns and maps and social movement? Mathematical systems I like. Traffic to me is a fascinating system. And I do love that stuff. But I can tell you with a high degree of confidence that actually having the job, even though it might be something that interests me, The forms that I have to fill out, the meetings that I have to attend, the structure of the job, I would fail. I would fail. But life is on the line here. (laughs) You're getting like three rubles a day or whatever. Then, yes, I would like to do that. Or what about a park ranger? Oh, fuck yeah. I love being outside. Okay. That would be my preference. Yeah. And you can secretly like sing and like play some guitar. Yeah, I can go find a pretty little glade and sing to the bunny rabbits. I have a friend from high school who became a park ranger, and she was one of the coolest people of my whole high school. So oh, I think God. it's an awesome job. I'm with you. I'm only saying things that I would like, actually. What would you do? I really enjoyed solitude as a kid. I don't know what the correlation of, like, how difficult it was to make friends. I would cling on to one best friend who would have, like, a wild imagination like me. We would play in the woods, build, like, forts, you know, just awesome because my mom wouldn't let me watch TV, which now I watch all the time. But I love to travel, and I think I'm good at it in the sense that it suits my personality. I don't think I'm a fussy or high-maintenance person. So if the plane's delayed, if the hotel room is, like, splattered with blood or whatever— It doesn't really rattle me. (laughs) So I don't know how that ability, like in my personality, like I've never sent any food back. Is that because you don't want to sort of like rock the boat and have a conflict with someone? Or is it just because you actually don't care? Yes, I don't like to rock the boat. I have been a waiter. I know what that's like to be on that end. Considering, I don't know, everything else going on, The snafus, (laughs) caring about certain things kind of feels irrational. You're not easily flappable. I don't think so. Which is a great way to be, and to me, like, very aspirational, because I can be a little neurotic sometimes. But it does make me feel like when I do eventually get really angry. It matters. Everybody feels shocked. I feel wickedly articulate. Cool. It is cool. It's only happened a few times in my life. But I like to stay steady. And I think that there's a way to kind of manage it, you know? Yeah. Do you ever find that you're in a situation where someone's like, you should really be pushing back harder about that? Like, why are you taking this so lightly or whatever? Uh Uh-huh. Because sometimes I feel like we are agreeable and mellow in a way that we start to lose, like, a healthy amount of self-preservation or, like, looking out for ourselves. 
I know I'm that way. Like that's my Southern upbringing is just sort of like putting others in front of me and trying to kind of like make everyone else feel comfortable. Or to make the situation easier. Oh, right. Yeah. Just go along to get along. Yeah. Yeah. This woman that I worked with, um, mom, she used to always say, stop apologizing so much. You don't need to apologize so much. Yeah. But what she didn't quite understand was that, of course, I have varying degrees of apologies. You know, <laughs> it's just easy for me to be like, oh, God, I'm sorry. I fucked up my line or like, guys, I'm sorry. I was like in the bathroom, whatever. I don't view myself as shedding power, although I may be wrong. I don't yeah. know. Yeah. A giving away power. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that was what she was trying to tell me. But to me, it was just like, no, I don't really mean it. I'm just agreeable. <laughs> <laughs> Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, Amanda. Hey. Hello. I'm here with Ed Helms. Awesome. Amanda, let me tell our listeners, we had talked back in 2021, and I just want to preface that because I'm really honored that you have called back. Yes. So anyway, please do tell us what's going on. Yeah. So, you know, last time we spoke, we talked a lot about my upbringing, and I grew up at a really religious upbringing, and placed a lot of like guilt and shame and things on myself that just unnecessary. But I allowed myself to be controlled by people in my life. And I realized after we spoke last time that I was living that situation in my marriage. And it just was really unhealthy. And I don't know if we touched on it last time, but I actually lost a very dear friend in 2019 to domestic violence. And I realized that while what I was going through wasn't what she had gone through, there were parts of that that were very similar mentally and emotionally. So I left at the end of last year. You left your husband. I did. I read that in your letter and I felt relieved for you. It was over a decade and was really scary. Sure. Especially because I was very worried about what my parents would think. And we hadn't had a relationship and I didn't take ownership for my part in that. You know, we only lived 20 minutes away and I saw them maybe, gosh, four or five times over the last seven or eight years. I would get nauseous every time I go over to their house. And I thought that was because I was feeling judged or whatever, but really I was just so miserable in where I was. I didn't want them to know, so I just kept it in. So, Amanda, wait, are you saying that your relationship with your parents has improved? I lived with them for several months. That's incredible. It is awesome. They've been a support system to you. Huge support. 
That makes me so happy. That is wonderful. It's been fantastic. It's never something that I would have ever imagined. Oh, my God. What a gift. It's a huge gift, especially to my kids. So I don't know what the minutia of how it all broke down, but essentially they were supportive of you leaving your husband. They were happy. Isn't that the fucking weirdest thing that has happened to me before, too? It was so weird. I called my dad because I thought, okay, this is going to be the hardest part. I was more nervous to call my dad than I was to leave my husband. Sure. Yeah, I know that feeling. Yeah, so I called him and he said, we'll come here, like stay here. And the first night that I was there, they were like, this is the most time we've spent with you and you know, 10, 10 years. They said, look, we know that you've been unhappy. We just didn't know what was going on. And so I just shared everything. And yeah, it's been really great. We have a very open and honest relationship. That is the best news. I thought it was just really impressive when I read that you made the choice to get a divorce. It's hard. It's not linear at all. <laughs> you seem really happy, though. Yeah, I am. It's pretty awesome. I mean, being able to have a relationship with my parents, but also being able to share things with them and not feel... Like, I know where they stand on things, and that's fine. But my boyfriend gets along so well with them, and they love my boyfriend. And it's been so nice to just go out and enjoy dinner with my parents and not stress or worry that I'm going to get yelled at when I get home because of the way that my dad may have looked at him. And it's been really, really nice. <laughs> so remind us about the child situation. So I was only married for a couple of months. My first marriage, my parents wanted me to get married because I was pregnant. And so that worked out super well. And so my 14-year-old son, his dad, he lives nearby. And then my daughter is 11. And your 11-year-old is the daughter of? My most recent ex-husband. So two dads. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. So it's been really difficult for her because her grandmother also lived with us. Oh, that's fun for you, Amanda. It was a lot. You know, my ex-husband did actually apologize to me when we were packing up our house before we sold it. And said, you know, I didn't realize until we were packing things how much she took over. And so I appreciated that. Yeah, that's like a crumb yeah. that you'll cling on to. That's exactly what my best friend said. And he texted me once, too, and apologized for being abusive. I said, are you seriously putting this in writing? <laughs> yeah, but it's a gift to, like, have an acknowledgement. A lot of people don't always get that. No, and that's what I said, too. And she said, but you have to remember, this is not, you know, an apology. Oh, I'm so glad you made the decision that you did. Yeah, I am, too. <laughs> okay, I want to get into this a little bit. Briefly sum up the reaction from your ex when you made the decision. Shock. This was not that long ago. Yeah, it was about a year now. So it was shock and awe because I had kept my mouth quiet on all these things that made me so unhappy. Yep. Is he in a relationship? He is. So he had started dating somebody, I think, in April or May. I started dating my boyfriend in May. But he keeps doing this thing where he's telling me what they say in the parenting quiz in Texas. They ask you to take a parenting class when you get divorced. It's like an online thing. And so he keeps like quoting certain parts to me. Like I told him that my boyfriend was moving in and obviously, you know, with the kids, that's something I wanted him to be aware of. And he quoted some of the class to me like, oh, well, you really uh, shouldn't be introducing the kids to anybody until it's been at least a year. And, you know, it's only been X amount of months and you're moving with somebody I'm like, well, thank you for your feedback. <laughs> but that's when I feel guilty and I feel bad. and I feel like I did something. Exactly. You're used to this pattern of control. Yeah. I know like that self-righteous quote back shit. Quoting a state mandated website course feels a little unsubstantial much yeah that's not really an authority i don't know no not so much he wants to make amanda feel small at least this is what i'm presuming amanda like the idea of during this time of chaos his brain is all scrambled and it's like angry 
and very justified. That's why it's kind of nice that you got an apology text, I suppose. At least there's some recognition there. Yeah. So about co-parenting, I would really think about like how you want life to look like in two years in terms of your relationship with him and just be patient. And he might be cruel and you may feel overly generous, which you probably do, whether it's like picking up the kids. Maybe he scolds you for the one small thing in the week that slipped. Does that sound familiar? Yeah, I forgot to put my daughter's charger. They have the laptops at school now, so I forgot to put the charger in the backpack in. Oh, boy. <laughs> this is what I mean. This will dissipate. It really will. It just is going to take another year, probably, and a lot of your patience and generosity. And I think you just don't play into it. Yeah. Kind of with anybody. Like, I think your parents are a safe zone. But the problem is when you start to, like, agitate and review the minutia and mm-hmm. all the, the things that are important— but they become more solidified and real. Yeah, yeah. You're going to probably experience a lot more of, like, passive-aggressive behavior. Yeah. And then, like, the confusions. He's wondering why. That's why he apologized to you. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, he's wondering, well, did I? Am I? What am I? And he just hadn't been hearing you ever, you know? He doesn't know how to listen to you. Yeah. I mean, I wasn't—I had no idea that I was so miserable either. And so I wasn't really sharing because I had— I don't know. I just was comfortable. And then I woke up one day and I was like, oh, boy. Right. Because we accept this status. Yeah. Amanda, I hope this gives you enough to chew on. I feel you, though. It feels good just to talk about it, especially with somebody that's gone through it. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. I can't tell you how much I appreciate you. And I'm thinking about you. Thank you. And Ed, it was so nice to meet you. I'm I'm a huge Office fan. So this was really cool for me. Awesome. Great to meet you, too, Amanda. And good luck out there. Thank you. Appreciate it. Ed, would you sail across the Pacific in a sailboat? Yes. You would, alone? No, God, no, not by myself. But I would do, I would join an excursion if it was, like, safe. What are your thoughts on traveling by train? Love train travel. Don't do it enough. Haven't done it much, but I love being on a train. I do, too. Yeah. I do, too. I don't know. I feel very emotionally vulnerable on trains. Yeah, I know. It's wonderful. Listen to Bob Dylan. Yeah, come on. Okay, I know this is impossible to summarize in like five minutes, but a lot of influential men in my life, they have a deep passion towards Bob Dylan. My dad, especially, but a ton of other people. Yeah. But tell me, and maybe I'll put together a piece. I think for me, I feel like I have a very personal connection to his music, and it's because it connects to something Like when I was younger, I was always searching for authenticity. I felt like everything was fake and everyone was like artificial. And, you know, I was very sort of jaded and judgy. And Bob Dylan was somebody who represented authenticity to me. And his music was like a connection to something very raw and visceral. Now, of course, I've become an adult and I now understand that Bob Dylan, of course, is the result of a very cultivated image that was, uh, you know, helped along by record labels and all that sort of thing. But I still believe that musicians who generate music from a place of passion and authenticity, it connects to something very visceral. That's how I feel when I listen to it. It's very raw connection. 
and I trust his intent. Like, I do think that, you know, he played the game. He was a businessman. All show business that's performance and performative, you're putting costumes on. Right, right, right. And even with the songwriting, there's certain moments in his poetry or his songwriting where you're like, that's from the gut. Right. Like, that's so legit. He wrote this staggeringly beautiful poem about Woody Guthrie, and you're like, oh, holy shit, that's the real deal. And when you listen to that and then listen to his music, you're like, I don't know. It just is kind of haunts me in a way. I love it. Can you give us advice? It can be anything. Go with your gut. Go with your you know damn what? gut. You're right, though. <laughs> can't really beat that. The gut is confused sometimes. That's the thing. Like, I'm always like, come on, trust your gut. And I'm like, well, wait, what's my gut saying? I know. My gut's being very, very elusive right now. I can't it totally. Quite, where's my fucking gut right now? Yeah. It is hard. It's really hard to tap in to exactly what you feel sometimes because we've built up so many coping mechanisms and we tell ourselves all these stories. And sometimes the story is just a thing that keeps you further away from your gut. But fight through it, especially in relationships are such a fertile crucible of all that. But uh, I think therapy is a great tool. It's just healthy to talk about the shit that you feel. I agree. Yeah. <laughs> Even though I've never tried therapy, there were definitely times when I should have. It's good. A lot of people think like, oh God, if I go to therapy, it's going to get so intense, but it just doesn't have to be that. It can start from a very just gentle curiosity. And that's really what I think is the best way in and maybe it gets deep and profound, or maybe you just learn some small things about yourself. No pressure. Yeah. It doesn't have to be this like brooding, dramatic, intense experience. I think it's easy to scare yourself away by sort of like over-dramatizing it or thinking that it's going to be this like incredibly painful thing. Believe me, it can get there and it can go there, but it's just not necessarily that. And even if you learn small things, what I found so helpful over time was that I just looked back and I realized like, oh, wow, I've really articulated a lot of my thoughts and feelings in a way that I never would have. Like I never would have sat and just explained to someone else and like heard it out loud. And that allows you to kind of move through the world with just like a little bit clearer understanding of yourself. Just by saying what you feel, putting it in words and trying to make someone else understand it makes you understand it better. I love that. I want to put some of it in our podcast description. And then add a lot of disclaimers. <laughs> Ed, I can't thank you enough. It was an absolute blast. And yeah, I'm just grateful to be on. Have me back. I'll be on anytime. <laughs>